Welcome to the Central Peninsula Church Podcast, a podcast all about real life together. Well, welcome everybody. Welcome to the CPC Together Podcast. This is Brandon Passion again with Kevin Sneed. And before we get started here, um, you know, this is kind of taking shape, this podcast that we're doing, Kevin. I don't know if you know, but um, it's starting to catch fire a little bit in a good way. <laughs> catch fire? What, was that, what does oh, that yeah. look like for you? Our listenership is through the roof. We're in the tens, tens of, of people. Tens of people will listen to this <laughs> podcast. Um, but we decided we wanted to start a little bit uh, with giving you just kind of a, a frame of what we're trying to do with this podcast moving forward. And um, really, what I thought of, Kevin, is sometimes when I make my protein shake in the morning, <laughs> I add a little bit too I, much. I get overzealous. <laughs> you can't add a whole banana. Right, I have this little neutral bullet thing, and when I when I add a whole banana and like too much water or too much frozen fruit or whatever, it overflows. Right, there's just too there's much too content. Much, too much of that. Can we back and up I before you I go had... forward? Can we? Can Can I speak for the listener? That's a bit skeptical that you slam a protein shake every morning. Well, I, you don't know what's in it. Did I say protein? <laughs> Is that what you call your milkshakes? Protein shakes? <laughs> I put sherbet. I put sherbet ice cream in. Sherbet protein. <laughs> you know what? When uh, I get really thin and in shape, you're going to feel bad about always making fun of me. I am. Uh, you'll probably beat me up because you'll be so jacked from your protein shakes, man. <laughs> anyway, I just wish that when that happens, Kevin, that when the protein I shake overflows, I, I messed up your, yeah. your, your rhythm there. I wish I had a receptacle that I could catch all of the extra stuff that overflows onto the counter. I don't want to throw that stuff away. I want to keep it and I want to savor it for later. And that's really what this podcast is about, right? <laughs> We're the spilt protein shake on the counter. That's what this is. Yes. That's the that's the vision. There's a that's the vision. Torrential downpour of uh, of content on a Sunday morning. And sometimes we just need to savor it Spills a little bit. Over. And so that's what we're doing. And hopefully this is I am your leftover you. banana. I am your leftover banana. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> anyway, so part uh, of your uh, talk yesterday, um, you framed the whole thing within the context of this story, a pretty famous story of David and Bathsheba. David. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big overview. You know, David, king of king of Israel at the time, sends the army off to war. He stays back, which is something he shouldn't have done. He should have been with the army to begin with. Then, as he's back home, he he's looking out from the top of his palace. He sees this woman Bathsheba bathing. Uh, sees her is a beautiful woman, so sends a servant to go bring Bathsheba to him. Um, does that. Bathsheba comes before David against her will, um, against her own volition. She doesn't necessarily have a choice in the matter. And, you know, you come before the king, and the king then sleeps with her. And from that, Bathsheba gets pregnant. So David then gets gets pretty nervous about that being exposed. And so he goes into crisis kind of control uh, mode, right? His life's beginning to fall apart. His sins are be- going to become public. And so he begins this kind of campaign to cover up that sin. So the first step he does is he brings Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back from war and says, hey, let's get her or the Uriah to sleep with his wife. And then, you know, she'll be pregnant from that. That'd be, you know, covered up, cover his tracks. That'd be good. 
Well, Uriah is just getting sort of, deeper and deeper and deeper. This is horrible. Yeah, just spiraling out of control, right? Um, and it only gets worse because then Uriah refuses. He's an upstanding man, says, I can't lay in my own bed while my um, comrades or whatnot are out at battle. So he refuses. David says, well, let me get him drunk. Maybe if I get him drunk, he'll do that. So they kind of party that night. And then Uriah goes back home, still refuses to sleep with his wife. And so David kind of then finally takes extreme measures and essentially writes his death warrant and says, send Uriah to the front of the lines where the fighting's the fiercest. And then when it gets escalated, have the whole army retreat back and Uriah will be left by himself on the front lines and will then be slaughtered. And so Uriah takes that note sealed by King David's stamp to the front lines, carrying his own death warrant, and eventually that gets carried out. And so David essentially commits murder, I mean, I guess manslaughter at the at the least, um, to cover up his sin. And then he would marry Bathsheba and hoping then, like, okay, now it's covered because it's all justified. I'm, you know, Bathsheba's my wife, and so that's where the child came from. Uh, so pretty yeah. pretty dark story, you know, pretty tough story. And the, the thing that, you know, hearing all of that, hearing the depths of of sort of the depravity of how far he's willing to go. The first thing that I, I was really impacting me was this idea of self-deception. Yeah. Like I feel like when you look at David's story, you can't help but see someone who really almost it's all, it feels like logic sort of has left him. Yeah. Like you don't go from the lust on top of the palace to murder logically. Like there's, there's no, like at some point your thinking gets derailed into that sort of self-deception to say I, that this is okay for me to do. Like no one wakes up and thinks that's the road ahead of me. Um, but yet that's where sin distorts us and distorts our own ability to tell the truth to ourselves. And so when we're in that moment of exposure, um, we begin to scramble and we go into kind of a, a self-preservation mode. Um, that's rooted on on you know kind of self deception or sin, and so I think that's what you're getting at is like the logic between lust to murder, although consistent with a sinful character, right? In the sense of like that all stems from the same space. That's a, that's a, that's a jump in logic, and you have to at some point you have to lie to yourself that that's the right next move, and then that's the right next move. Like there's there's a a cycle of lies you tell yourself to get to that sort mm. of depth, um, in particularly in the story of David. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, there's a temptation in all of these uh, Bible stories to sort of say, yeah, you know, I would never do that. Like that wouldn't be, you know, I've done some shady things. I may have even lied to myself a little bit, but I'm not like murdering people and that kind of stuff. But you told us that that you kind of give us three examples of ways that we do this. We we, We justify our own sin. Um, And those three things are minimizing relativizing, which I really did think you made that up until I typed it down and it didn't give me a spell check error. I thought relativize was, was not a real word. And then trivialize. Maybe um, with your with your protein shake, you can grab a dictionary and do both of those in the morning. You know, that <laughs> my mind and my body will be fit. Um, talk about those a little bit. Minimize, relativize, yeah. trivialize. You think we do those when we're trying to justify our own sin? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, you know, minimize, I think is, again, we tend to think of our actions in small ways. We look at it as, oh, it's just a small thing. Or, or I often hear, it doesn't hurt anybody. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't bring any harm. It's just me and my decision or whatnot. And we minimize the effect of our actions. 
Um, and that leads to all sorts of problems where, it, again, I think it allows, it opens up the ability for it to escalate rather quickly. Um, and then relativize, this one may be, um, I would say this is probably the most common one in our in our moment, our cultural kind of moment, is we just kind of look around at the culture and say, well, everybody else is doing it, right? And we lose that sort of distinction to say, you know, the way of Jesus calls us to something different. And so we relativize our sins saying, ah, you know, everyone in my family's always done this. And so it's okay. Or my friends are all doing this. Or um, our culture is doing this. And so we relativize um, that sin and, and forget that, that Jesus calls us to something greater than that. The way of Jesus is different than that. Which is nothing new from our childhood, by the way. Like, you know, yeah. like your mom saying, oh, so Jimmy did it. So if Jimmy jumps <laughs> off a cliff, are you going to jump off a cliff? <laughs> yeah. No, mom, it's different. I've- mom always dropping the truth bomb but that's that's exactly it right that's like totally it we just do that thinking it's totally normal uh and then third we trivialize and 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 i think what i'm I'm drawing out from there is a little different than minimize in that uh we make it seem like it's um like they're trivial matters like they don't really bring about any harm um to others and we we kind of in in that way um we forget the effects it has on your soul and on your own heart and the way in which you're being formed. <clears throat> and that was a little bit what I was trying to bring out on Sunday was that, you know, David in particular from that story, he was the kind of person who allowed himself to have that sort of cycle of sin take place. And there's that consistency um, between our character, right? And that's, you know, when David says in Psalm 51, I was sinful from, from my mother's womb. That's what he's linking together. This idea that, what happened in uh, from him as a child is the same space at which the sin he has in Second Samuel eleven and twelve with Bathsheba, like those come from the same space. The sin as a child and the sin as an adult, it's consistent with character that is bent away from the things of God, and so that that becomes the natural outflow of our life. And that's I think when we trivialize, we forget the formative effects it's having on our soul. Um, and we're looking mm-hmm. only at the consequences, not at the way it's shaping our world, the way we understand the world, and the way we are discipled. Yeah, I've heard people talk about it by saying, like, it's not like what the things that we ascribe passivity to are actually not passive at all. You know, even down yeah. to the, the things that we the things that we watch or the things that we put in our home. You know, like someone used a TV as an example. Like, we think of a TV as this passive medium and even putting the TV in your house changes the way yeah. your house reacts with it. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. totally, and we don't want to acknowledge that. So we trivialize it. I think that's, that's a really good uh, way to put it. That's a basic kind of formation. Understand. I've heard, gosh, I forget where or who said it, but it was something to the effect of like the things we do, do something to us. Like if we could just grab that idea that the, the everything we do is doing, is forming us in some way. Like that's such a basic, um, foundational reality of what it means to be human and so then when we map spiritual formation or Christian formation onto that we recognize yeah that those minor things um, you know launched over the next next decade has a deeply formative effect on us so we have to take those into consideration you gave a very sobering uh, quote kind of when you were talking about a friend that um, was in this process of kind of uh, deceiving himself and you were kind of yeah trying to help him walk through it. And you said that when he came out of it, he kind of woke up because that's what happens a lot of time. Either you're Mm. you're exposed or something else wakes you up. And once he kind of woke up to what he was doing, he said this, and it just kind of hit me like a dagger in my heart. Sometimes we want our sin more than we want God. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think that's that's uh in some ways that's what we're really saying when we choose yeah. sin, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cuz we are um at least the Christian understanding again of of the human of of you know our anthropology what it means to be human is that we we are the collection of our loves and our longings and and so we're always then uh, you know as we're in the process of discipleship of being restored by the work of the holy spirit there's always that battle for our heart right our will um the place where we make decisions and often um almost overwhelmingly sin looks more enticing than god when we don't quite, uh, when we haven't been restored by the work of the Holy Spirit, right? When those loves haven't been um, bent back towards God, but are still bent inward. And so we want our sin more than we want God. And we, it takes a, um, an activity as well as a renewal of the work of the Holy Spirit um, to get to that proper ordering of love uh, where we want God more than our sin. Uh, but that's the irony, right? Is like once we get to that place where our love naturally falls in line uh, to want God more, then it's not so much that we have to grit our teeth every single day to resist sin, but then we're operating out of a healthy love. And that that's the goal, right? That's the easy yoke that Jesus would talk about, right? And that's a whole different posture of how we follow Jesus than just gritting our teeth, hoping we don't sin. You know, like there's a different level of freedom that we walk in when Jesus is the center point of our affection. So you you kind of expand on confession, um, and the way I'm thinking of it is, it's almost like you said that confession needs to go, like confession does bring about forgiveness, but it needs to go further than just admitting you did something wrong, further than just admitting that you're guilty. You talked about renouncing the sin, and when we renounce the sin, that brings about change. Yeah, so it's it's that the the distinction between, you know, when we admit our guilt, like that is as you just said, like that that's a step we need to take. It's the first step that we take on the road to repentance. Um and that brings that forgiveness that's always available. The work of Jesus on the cross is finished. The forgiveness is available for us to step into. But if we want to actually see change, we have to the word I'm using here is renounce, like and and in some ways renouncing implies or it almost like strips the sin of its power by saying, not only do I confess I've done that, but now I'm saying that that's the wrong way to live and that that's counter mm. to the way of God. And when you then renounce it and strip it of its power, you then have the opportunity to bring about change because you recognize it as the fraud that it is, the idol that it is, or whatever whatever the, the particular sin is. Um, and so renouncing creates the space for you to actually change. Receiving forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean you're going to change your actions. Um, repentance does, which again is what I'm suggesting. The process of repentance is confession and renunciation, confession and change, um, which stems from again that idea of of almost turning around, which is some of the like the Greek word for repentance has this sort of changing the the core of who you are and going a different direction, uh, which takes confessing it and then renouncing it. Um, you know, if you're lost, you have to admit that you're lost first, and then you actually got to change and you got to renounce the way, the wrong way you're going, right? Like I'm headed south and I should be going north. Like that's a renunciation of the path south towards wherever it is to go back north. Um, I don't know if that metaphor works, but that's what came to yeah, mind. Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you juxtaposed repentance versus self-pity. 
Yeah. Right. Where where a lot of times, especially if we're exposed. Mm-hmm. We we get to this point where we're like, okay, well, you know, I feel bad about what happened. In reality, um, you just kind of feel bad about the consequences that you're facing. Yes. And I think about, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but we have at church, when someone is struggling um, uh, in sin or they're uh, maybe caught in some kind of moral failure, CPC does this um, restoration process where you you kind of go through this intense process of of not just exposing your sin but repenting of your sin and then sort of realigning with with the way of Jesus but it starts when people sign on to this restoration thing that the CPC does it starts with identifying if the person is just experiencing like what you're describing as self-pity or if they're mm. really actually repentant like is it something that they actually want to change in their lives? Is it something they really believe yeah. is is robbing them and destroying them um, of the what God has created them for? And it's almost like in, until you until you repent, like you said, like you're being lost analogy. Until you get to that point, you really can't move on because you're not you're still deceiving yourself, right? Like you're yeah. still kind of lost. And I love the story you told. Um, about uh, you and Lindsay, you know, like when you when you finally looked at her in mm. the eye and you saw the effects of uh, the effect that you had on her, it it totally changed. Like you saw yeah. Yeah. sin for the evil it was and the ripple effect. And I feel like that's kind of where we need to get right. Yeah, with our yeah. sin. Yeah, it got you know for me in that that story I shared, it got to the point where, as you said, you, as you said really well, like self pity is really self love, and it's it's you are frustrated at the consequences, the fallout of the sin that you now have to experience. But until like for me, as you just said, it took me looking at Lindsay in the eye and realizing, oh my goodness, like the effect I've had on her, the pain I've caused in her, it shifted to where, you know, gratefully, I think probably just by the grace of God, I was able to stop focusing on loving myself and actually loving the one who I cared about in in Lindsay. And when I saw Mm -hmm. the effects that had, then there was that realization of no, I want, I, I, I don't want to be here again. Like this is, this is the, this is not where my life should be, and where the mistakes I were making, that's not where I want to live. There's not healing. There's not freedom in that. Uh, yeah, I was, I was thinking as you were talking there that story. Um, I think it's in John five where Jesus is at the pool, and this guy is there, and he he's um, laying by it. You get the sense that he's been there for a long time, and Jesus asks, he's. Um, forget his condition. I think he's an invalid um, for years, like, like uh, you know, decades. He's been laying by this pool and um, Jesus comes up to him and he asks him this question, do you want to get well? Uh, which is like a, like, of course, Jesus, like, why do you think he's here? Yeah. He's wanting to be healed. But yet I think that's the same question that you're getting at is sometimes we can get so comfortable and apathetic to our ailments or our sin, like not necessarily that in this case with the man at the pool, um, it was it was caused by his sin or whatnot. But but we get so comfortable with our affliction that we don't actually want to get well because it becomes our identity. And mm. I think for whatever um, sin we're facing, there's a comfortability of just being sick. And have we really called out or got to that place where we say, no, I I do need healing. And then I want healing. Uh, and, and again, for me, that wake-up call came when I saw the pain in Lindsay's eyes and, and realized the damage I was causing 
to where I said, no, I need, I need healing from this. This is not where I want to be. Um, and it's unfortunate that it took that long. You know, there were probably many, if I were to look back at that process, it was a long time ago, but I can guarantee there were other spots along the road where I could have figured that out sooner, um, and not caused mm. as much harm. Um, unfortunately that's, that's what happened, but the grace of God that it stopped there and I was able to, to kind of start a road of, of healing there. If you're listening to this, I feel like it's time to to maybe ask yourself that question or imagine Jesus asking you that question when it comes to whatever sin the Holy Spirit is bringing to your mind, whatever you feel like maybe you need to be dealing with, uh, do you want to get better? Do you actually want to take that step to get better? That's that's a, it's a hard question to ask, particularly if you're in the throes of self-deception and you've built a whole narrative and you have a whole story of why you're doing what you're doing and and you can and the thing is you can always find people that will agree with you. Yeah. When you're yeah. in that self-deception mode, you're going to find you're going to find a few people that are like, "Oh yeah, like totally. You you deserve to do this." Or I, I David didn't talk it didn't talk about that if David had those people, but you got to imagine. Yeah. You know, there were people that were like, "Yeah, King David, whatever you want, man. No, you're the king. This is yeah. your thing. Yeah, do whatever you got to do." Yeah. Um but I think it's important to ask that question. Yeah. Um, you also uh, you talked about this whole the the famous verse that we made a song. We didn't make a song, but the creating me a clean heart. Oh God, I wish I wrote that song. Was that Michael W. Smith least, that wrote that song? No, no, I think it was Don Moen. I don't know. Um, but uh, part of that verse restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Yeah. Um, and you said that instead of seeking our joy in God, we seek our joy in finite, limited things. Yeah. And I started thinking about this, um, and I'm, I'm curious if you if you agree with this or not. But like uh, speaking of my health journey and protein shakes and that kind of thing, <laughs> there are there are landmarks. There are like you know yellow flags, and then there are red flags that I know I have I have digressed into poor health, right? Like if I'm eating well, you know, I'm generally avoiding all sugar, that kind of thing. Yeah. If I, if I'm, if I'm starting to slip a little bit, I'll start introducing diet soda. So if you see me with a diet soda, you're like, oh man, you're just trying to fake that you're, you're eating sugar. I know it's still in you, you know, and then I move a little deeper, but the depth of my pit of despair for my health journey is McDonald's. If you ever see me at a McDonald's, that is because I have slipped so far on my health journey that I'm saying, I do not care. I'm going, I'm going to get nugget, McNuggets. I'm just going to get a 20-piece McNugget. 20-piece McNugget? <laughs> do you, have you, no. I don't want to make this a confessional. Have you slammed 20 McNuggets in one sitting before? Yes. It's $5.99. <laughs> Five. I I don't want twenty of anything if it's only five ninety nine. <laughs> and here's the, and here's the here's the uh, the the self deception. In all of it. I don't get the fries. Well, because you're watching your figure. That makes yeah. Well, twenty sense. McNuggets. I mean, twenty McNuggets mostly chicken. You know, all these things I'm telling myself. Uh, but here's the thing that I was reading. This is my my question. So. I notice that when I am eating well and when I'm starting, when I'm exercising and feeling good and, um, you know, after a couple of weeks, your taste buds start to crave different things. When I smell McDonald's in that phase of my life, you just smell it. It smells yeah. disgusting. 
you see the golden arches, the golden arches, and you're like, nasty. No, like someone suggests it, and you're like, you're dis- your kid. Well, I want McDonald's. You're like, you're disgusting. Don't. No, we're not doing that. Um, and in some ways, when I'm in touch with being healthy, when I'm when I'm yeah in touch with that or whatever, uh, I don't want McDonald's as much. the The temptation is basically gone. Yeah. Um, and I kind of feel like when when you talk about the joy of being with God, the joy of, of what it means to be connecting with him and, and walking, uh, with the Holy spirit, it seems like, like the more, you know, the joy of God, that the less appealing sin seems. Would you agree with that? Yeah. <clears throat> well, a couple of things before I get to that, I think that, that your analogy is really good is there's, you know, you referenced when you're eating healthy, McDonald's becomes less appealing. And so there, there's something like there's some way where your love has shifted, right? Your love for McNuggets have shifted to a nice garden <laughs> salad or whatever it is. Um, but I think the question we have to ask is how do we shape our loves? Like how do you get to the place where your, your love shifts from McNuggets to salad? And I think what's in there, and this is the interplay of like – of structure and the importance of having a sort of discipline and and human effort. Like there's a point at which you have to renounce McNuggets and then you put things in place to help shape your loves. You create a meal plan, you go shopping, you only allow healthy foods in your house, you, you know, take McDonald's off your favorites on Google Maps or something like that. <laughs> like whatever it is. But it's that idea that you can put a a structure, a rule in place that helps to shape your love. And eventually, the hope is that that creates a different habit within you that then in turn shapes your love to where choosing the garden salad is much easier than choosing McDonald's. And then you experience that freedom. Now, at any point, right, you can backtrack. And that's what you were kind of describing. There are, it ebbs and flows, right? You drift into Diet Coke land, and that's where you're like, drifting away and hopefully there's there's a, a community around that begin to find that right and we're stretching this metaphor a little long i think that you Diet can Coke is the gateway drug is the gateway drug <laughs> <laughs> but i love that idea again though of, of how we shape our loves um, now i think the beautiful thing with with discipleship right is we have the work of the holy spirit with us but i think it's how do we shape our loves how do you get to the place where you like salad more than mcdonald's or you mm-hmm. like God, you enjoy communion and you find acceptance from God and validation from God opposed to validation from the next sex partner or the next promotion or the next material thing you have to buy, right? It's how do we find our validation identity in God? And that's a shaping of the love question, which then I think that statement you said that, um, I forget how you said it. Uh, the the more with. you know the joy of God, the less yes. appealing sin seems. Yeah, yeah, which I think is, yeah, the more you know the joy of God, the less appealing sin, sin appears, um, is right in the sense that it, that no, like, let's do a little work on the word no. Um, no, you know, when we hear that, we think of mental assent. We think of our minds, if I have the right belief in line. But belief and action have kind of a, um, an interconnected relationship. Right, and so even even the Greek word for no, gnosko, is not just head knowledge; it's experiential knowledge. Um, there's a difference between knowing a chair will hold me and sitting in that chair and knowing it will hold me. 
Um, that's a different mm. level of knowledge in the same way that there's a different level of the fact that I, um, I know John Krasinski, like I know of him, right? But I don't know him like I'm talking to you now. I have an experiential knowledge because of you know me and your relationship. We know one another. We rub shoulders together. We go golfing together, whatever it is. I don't do those things with John Krasinski. And there's a different level of intimacy in that. And you would if you could, though. <laughs> it's just a strong jawline he's got. I absolutely would. He seems know? like a great. He seems like a great guy. I don't think. I don't think I'm meeting him at McDonald's, though. I don't think that's happening. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! But but it's this sort of like depth of knowledge, and so I think that's exactly right. When you say the more we know the joy of God, the more we experience, understand the true objective truth of. God brings joy, um, then sin begins to lose its appeal uh, because we see sin then for the parody that it is, that it's just, it's mm. posing itself as um, something that can bring life when it can't. And it, it's a fraud in the way that then we realize objectively that God is in fact truth and brings brings life. Uh, you know, again, that's the verse yeah, I so always come back to real quick, just John 10, 10, I've come to give life and life to the fullest. And if we trust Jesus as that, that reshapes everything. You know, if we really believe he offers life to the fullest, even if it doesn't look the way we thought it would. Yeah, it, it changes our perspective when we live into the fullness of, of God's joy. It, yeah. And like you said, when you have that perspective, you see sin for what it is. And that's, man, yeah, that's good. Um, if we're going to leave people with uh, something to something to grab onto with this idea. So you're saying sort of the first step of this is confession. The next step of it is this idea of renouncing the sin. So, you know, I think, I think one of the things I'm hearing uh, with a lot of this self-deception stuff that we're talking about is pay attention to the story that you're telling yourself. Yeah. It's huge. Um, yeah. Cause you know, just thinking through what you're doing, like we're always selling ourselves. <laughs> on these ideas and it's it's kind of it's crazy to think that we do this all the time as as logical and smart as we and evolved as we feel like we are like we're yeah. always just telling ourselves these weird little lies yeah. and so if you can pay attention to that story and that's not always easy to do and i think that would lead me to another step of uh what we said is choose your nathan um david yeah. had a, the prophet that came in and said hey and he exposed David. And that's an uncomfortable thing to have someone yeah. <laughs> uh, expose you. It could be slightly less uncomfortable if you choose that person. Yeah. Um, to find that person and say, hey, I need you to take a look at this. Uh, I, yeah. I'm not convinced I'm seeing this accurately. Yeah. yeah. And that's so rare to cultivate. It's unfortunately rare to cultivate those kind of relationships where you are able to give someone full access to your life and say, you are, you have permission to speak into my life. Um, to have that sort of trust is pretty, um, you know, we don't come by that often, but it's profoundly impactful, right? When you can then be yourself fully in front of someone and know that they have their best, your best interest in mind, which may mean calling you out, right? And may mean saying, hey, what you're, the way you're living here is inconsistent with who you want to be and what's going on there. Um, which is what Nathan was able to do. And and I, I'd suggest that, you know, the grace of God is to send a Nathan. And as you were saying, like, we've either got the choice to cultivate that or or God's probably going to send some sort of circumstance that's going to allow us 
to be confronted with ourselves because that's the grace of God. Like that, God confronting us in our sin is in fact the grace that leads to life. And so how cool is that, that we, you know, like, I love that idea of saying we could choose that person and actually, you know, Mm. be proactive, not reactive in, in kind of putting that guardrail in effect. Or you could put it this way. Would I choose to order 20 chicken McNuggets if you were sitting in the passenger seat watching me order? I mean, if I do, at at your very kindest, you're going to say, Brandon, you don't want those. Here's a Diet Coke. Yeah. That's what I'll say. Let's backtrack it one more. Just you so you're aware, by the way, that. we have, I think on every episode, we, we're giving people a junk, like there's an issue here, man. We talked Twinkies and Airheads and now McDonald's. Yeah. These are my confessions. Um, yeah. Maybe someday soon we'll all celebrate growth as we talk about, you know, we started using broccoli as analogy. Um, last one, and I think this is helpful, and we're going to actually attach this in the show notes. Kevin, um, you have this uh, chart that's kind of levels of sin. Um, you call it the four stages, or whoever wrote this calls it the four stages of purgation. Um, could you just give us a real quick uh before people check out when they hear the word purgation, could you just give us a really quick overview? There's kind of yeah. four levels, and I actually found this really, really helpful when you're yeah. sort of looking at your sin and, and some of the justification that we do. Yeah. Yeah, so this is from a, a book called Invitation to a Journey. Uh, great book, small little book about spiritual formation written by Robert Mulholland. And he calls it the four stages of purgation, which it is strange you know, verbiage for us, so don't let that trip you up. But what he's getting at is that there is four layers of sin, and all of those must be purged from us, right? So we have to uproot those layers of sin. So the first two um, are in kind of the behavioral realm, um, so things we, we do with our, with our bodies, right? Like just actions we take. And the first layer is this idea of gross sins. And he, by using that, he doesn't mean like icky. He means, um, you know, kind of it's old language. Uh, so it's not necessarily like icky sins. Uh, but they're deliberate sins. These are behaviors that are in direct contrast to the kingdom of God. You know, think of Paul's letters, um, particularly like the list in like Galatians, where he talks about things that that are nearly you know universally accepted as wrong. Uh, the Ten Commandments would be one of those. Like, yeah, yeah, it'd be hard to find someone who doesn't agree that murder is wrong, right? And so there's like that layer. Well, I think. A- <laughs> Sorry, continue. <laughs> uh, uh, I think, honestly, in some ways, we tend to only view sin at that layer. Um, and when we don't go further, and I think these next layers, we tend to see it. Um, you, I think it'll make more sense. But we tend to only, when the word sin comes to our mind, we tend to go straight to that. And sin is much more robust than that. And so we need a you know kind of a deeper imagination for sin. Uh, which is what layer two gets at. So this is still on the behavioral side, but layer two is what he calls deliberate sins. And these are willful transgressions of the known will of God. So this is God has given us the will to love our neighbors. And we then willfully transgress that by not loving them. Um, And Mm. so it's kind of, we know exactly what God's calling us to, and yet we choose not to do it. Um, These are things that are usually... Uh, or probably socially acceptable behavior, right? So think of something like materialism or gossip, where like culturally, it's like, yeah, what, what's, the, what's the problem with, you know, being obsessed with consumption and with gossiping about your coworker? Um, but yet we know um, is that, that that is incongruent with the way of Jesus. 
that Jesus is calling us to something greater. And so that's what, again, he calls deliberate sins. Um, the next two layers are not the behavioral, but more the shadow side. And so he'd say those shadow side sins are the things that we can't see um, that happen kind of beneath our consciousness at times. And that's, the, that's layer three, as he calls it, unconscious sins. And these would be like, again, those blind spots. They're, they're usually internal things. So they're patterns of thinking, um, maybe postures towards others, um, where we always you know, think a certain thing when someone comes into a room, um, mm. or we have this sort of pattern of thinking we're better than others. Right? Like that could be a pattern of thinking that is a sort of unconscious sin. It just kind of happens. Um, but that needs yeah. to be uprooted. And then this last one, uh, this layer four, he calls trust structures. And he defines it this way. He says, these are the deep inner postures of our being that do not rely on God, but on self for our well-being. Um, so it's, it's that way that we create an identity and we find our self-worth, our self-well-being on things other than God. Um, I think later on in that chapter, he calls them emotional programs for coping. And so there are these ways that we justify, you know, those three things I said earlier about minimizing, relativizing, or trivializing. He says those are, those are ways in which we cope with, like, you know, the failures of our own life. And so we construct structures of trust to say, I trust this thing. I trust my own ability to achieve more than I trust God. I trust my own ability to consume and earn and, and then be fulfilled from that. Then I trust the satisfaction of sitting in the presence of God. Um, and so these sorts of, they become kind of like, you know, safety nets, um, where when everything falls apart, it's like, I can go back to that thing. I mean, often these are addictions, um, that say, this is how I can handle whatever particular sin I'm facing. Um, but all yeah. four of those need to be purged. They need, you know, those are all forms of sin that will lead, lead to death, that will lead to destruction. Um, and God wants that, you know, Jesus is inviting us to, to be healed from those things. That's really helpful. Um, and we hope that you find this helpful as you're on your journey of purgation, purgation, purgation. I want to say purgation. Nailed it. That's perfect. That's perfect. That's it's perfect. not purgation. It's purgation. You were wrong the first time. Oh, wow. All right. Well, uh, we're going to leave you there. <laughs> on that note. And um, we are doing this. Uh, we are attempting to do this every week after the, the message. So if this is helpful for you, let us know. Um, and a lot of you have been letting us know, and it's very helpful. Um, if it's not helpful for you, we don't need you to let us know. That's fine. Um, but we will uh, we'll see you at same time and place next week. Thanks for checking in. Talk to you guys later. Boom. <laughs>